<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody. How you doing? This is the Tom Hartman Show. We are pleased that you're listening. I am Jeff. I am pleased and honored to be here. For people who haven't been listening to us the last couple mornings, have access to no internet, don't watch any TV, have never seen a newspaper in the last several days, the very quick fill-in is that over the last few days, we have seen the closing of the last two-year investigation that offered its conclusions. We don't know exactly what those conclusions are. We know the top lines. The top lines were no provable charges, on collusion, on coordination, on conspiracy between the Trump administration, the Trump campaign, and Russia. Also, strong evidence, indictable evidence, 37 indictments, in fact, of Russian interference on American elections, trying to help elect Donald Trump, the current president of the United States. And then a jump ball, a punt, pick your own sports analogy, if you like sports analogies, on whether or not there was obstruction of justice. And the question then becomes, should opponents of the president dig in and continue to prioritize the release of that information? The other background being happening just in the last 26 hours, Mitch McConnell blocking the previously unanimous vote by the House to release the full report leaving us in the dark as to why Bob Mueller did not reach conclusion on obstruction of justice and leaving us in the dark about what else was in the report. Leaving even James Comey to say, I am confused about the actions of Bob Mueller. And part of the question is the, and, and see, I, I believe in sort of the genius of and not the tyranny of war, but the question that is still happening within the inside halls of Democratic strategy rooms is whether to fight hard on the Mueller investigation, whether to fight hard on getting the report out, or whether to 
address instead or with a higher priority what the Department of Justice did the very next day, which is say that the Trump administration will work to eliminate health care for millions of Americans. Add that to what we already know, which is with the tax cuts for upper income and wealthy Americans, it is leading to Republicans pushing for reduction in Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Major pieces of the social justice infrastructure of the country. I want to cite two different people. One, now you all have been very kind. I received one nasty note. And the nasty note said it was an insulting, disgusting show. It said some nasty things about the person who's, who I am grateful to sit in for, but that I did not express sufficient outrage. I wondered if I didn't care. They, they talked about a fight that they had witnessed and they had felt really bad about that fight. In fact, they had gotten beaten up and they felt even worse about this, about the lack of an indictment of Donald Trump in this than they had felt after they'd gotten beaten up. And, you know, it was, a, it was an email from a listener and so it was hard to parse. But I understood part of that point. And I recognized that I was feeling it and I wasn't wanting to bring it onto the air. That I too, even though I knew it, even though in my frontal lobes, even in my frontal lobes I'd said, listen, and I will quote Paul Krugman, who had said, he said three points. We need to see the report, not just Trump appointees summaries. Second, and importantly, anyone who thought Mueller was a silver bullet that would bring Trump down was living in a dream world. And third, the administration's corruption on multiple fronts as obvious as ever. We can essentially agree on those points, I suspect. And I knew from the beginning, I saw what Mueller did in the NFL case. I looked at his background. There was no suggestion to me. There was no indication. There was no sufficient evidence. I did not have the hunch that Bob Mueller was a Ken Starr for the left or even the center, that he was somebody who was going to work really, really hard to try to disrupt a presidential administration. He did not seem to be, to be that kind of person. But still, I will acknowledge, like that listener, and like a couple, we got a couple phone calls yesterday who were, were perfectly polite and offered really smart points, but I could hear the anger in their voices. I could hear the rage. And I had written before the show, I hadn't said it, but I had written before the show, you know, I do a bunch of writing to try to be ready. And I'd written before the show that our job is not to get people more angry. Our job is not to merely distribute heat, but to distribute light. That we want to lead with the facts, facts first, conclusions second. That we hope to inspire more than enrage. That we try not to stoke the divisions among us in the country but find the ways that we can make democracy stronger. And in my writing, I realized I was giving myself a pep talk. In my preparations, I was trying to, because I recognize this show is not about my feelings or my outrage. I'm sitting in, I'm a guest. And ultimately this show is about democracy and it's about you. And well, one instinct I had with this angry listener was to respond in kind. And they ended up, after a little bit of interchange, saying actually a couple of really nice things. I recognized that I had scrubbed a little bit my own emotional reaction. Maybe that's good. I want to manage 
my own anger. I want us to manage all of our angers. I've hurt people in my life. We have, many of us have hurt people in our lives. I want to not stoke our baser instincts to punish our enemies merely for the purpose of punishment or merely for the purpose of making enemies. But I recognize that there ought to be space for the folks who have felt, who, who whether it was rational or strategic or accurate or whether it was a good bet, we're really hoping that investigation would lead to some clear conclusions that jibed on at least that third point from Krugman. The deep corruption in the White House that feels linked to children being in cages, to losing their health care. If you have feelings you want to share, call in. We're going to give you a chance. This is the Tom Hartman Program. From Pialop, Washington, Antoinette, listening on KNBC. Hello, Antoinette. Hello. I just wanted to say that something kind of simple. All this frustration and anger and rage can be directed. You can take you can take those kinds of emotions and turn them into something positive by directing them in, in a positive way. And I think we should direct all our energy toward getting out the Democratic vote. There's people that are saying that if this happens or that happens, Trump could get reelected. Well, whatever we do, we have to make sure Trump doesn't get reelected. We should put all our energy into getting out people to vote, into making sure that Republicans aren't being able to get people off the voter polls. And once we, God willing, get a Democratic president in there, we should put our energy into repealing the Citizens Act and taking, you know, elections out of the hands of the Koch brothers and people like them. That's all I have to say. Amen, Antoinette. And to, just to paraphrase, try to amplify what I heard you say was channel frustration, channel anger, channel fear to positive activity. And a couple examples of positive activity are trying to win the big picture election that people are concerned about and then make sure to prioritize uh, democracy, prioritize the process, prioritize rooting out big scale voter suppression and big scale corruption so that democracy has a chance. Is that a fair summary? Exactly. Perfect. Yes. Thank you very much for the call. That's what I think we need to do. Okay. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Lowell, Salem, Oregon. Thank you, Jefferson. So I wanted to bring up just a reminder of some of the history of of the people we're dealing with. Yep. So, for example, William Barr was, you know, under George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan, and he got George H.W. Bush off for treason, as well as exonerated all the people from the Iran-Contra scandal. Yep. And then... Bob Mueller, you know, testified that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. So we're not exactly looking at people who are not company men, as, as they would say. Right. William Sapphire called Bill Barr cover-up general. And we had yeah. it got one of, a CK, one of our listeners, offered a, a bunch of phrases uh, that people might adopt. She had different, uh, CK had a different name for Barr, but William Sapphire's was, uh, was cover-up general. Uh, the Mueller stuff is also important, Lowell. Thank you for, thank you for reminding us. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll be right back here on the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff Smith. You're you.
Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And joining us is our friend Alex Lawson, Executive Director of Social Security Works, friend of the show. Alex, good sir, how you doing? Great, thanks for having me. With all of the discussion around the, uh, not just the Mueller investigation, but the Barr letter, we may be missing important information about what's happening with respect to health care. And the topic, I believe, is Trump and Republicans coming after your health care. Is that overstated? It's understating, if anything. What we're talking about right now is that the Trump administration, including the same DOJ, the same Department of Justice, is now going to attack every piece of what people call Obamacare. The whole thing. They say that they're going to try to just get rid of it all. That includes the Medicaid expansion. That includes the protections for pre-existing conditions. That includes the tax credits to help people pay for their insurance. All of it gone. That's Trump's plan for health care in this country is to literally rip health care away from tens of millions of people. Just rip it away. And also to revert to the day when these uh, parasitic insurance companies could deny people care. Uh, those who need it most would be those quickest denied. Um, so we're just seeing exactly what we've always known this administration wanted. And, and to be fair, what the Republican Party wants. This is the only plan they have for health care. Steal our health care. Reach their hands into yours and my pocket, steal our money by stealing our health care and give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. The only difference now is that they're being super open about it and they're going to bring the entire weight of the U.S. government against people's health care and what we have right now. So we're up against our own government who's trying to steal our health care. Let's nerd out for just a minute. What are the most important legal arguments? I know that previously there had been, well, I'm, I'm looking at the Vox article about this. It describes some of the arguments as, I think, absurd. Spurious is another word that Vox uses in this article. That federal judge Reed O'Connor nonetheless ruled in December that the mandate is unconstitutional. Is that the primary legal argument that the insurance mandate, or what are the other sort of critical legal arguments that the community ought to understand? Jeff, the important thing to understand is that this is an idiotic, there's no legal arguments here. This isn't driven by any legal arguments. There's nothing to stand on. Um, this judge's actions have been roundly rejected by the conservatives 
legal movement who see it as nothing more than naked partisanship from a bench, uh, right? So it's a judge wielding judicial power as legislative power. This is activist judge to the extreme because the legal argument makes no sense at all. I don't want to like go too far into the weeds on it. How come? It's so stupid, you actually get dumber if you have to follow along with the twists and turns that they've put themselves in. But it basically goes like this. They say that the individual mandate, which was a tax penalty uh, if you didn't get insurance, that's inseparable from the whole law, even though Congress actually did separate it and said, we're going to get rid of that. Um, This judge says, nope, you can't do that. Without that, the whole thing actually goes away. And there's literally no justification. There's no legal basis for any of that. It's just a naked attack. And yeah, I recognize that I'm, I'm being nerdy and I either apologize or maybe not for that. But what is the what is the argument? You would call it an illegal argument. What would be the legal argument? What would what would Bill Barr say is the reason why the individual mandate or what would Judge Reed O'Connor say is the argument for why the individual mandate is unconstitutional? Previously, it was said because they set it at zero. So that you couldn't have a zero tax. Yeah. But again, this is all moot um, because the law was changed. Just that part of it was removed. So there is no legal justification. I'm not... So let me, let me, go, from walk to, let me go from walk to hack and ask a different question then. What is the risk, or maybe even what's the motive? If there's no justification, is it, well, they just want to be able to say this so they keep it alive as a political issue, so they can say Obamacare lots of times and gin up Fox News voters to do whatever it is Fox News voters will do? Or do they think that because that Donald Trump has, been, has had success in packing the court that they will get sufficient judges to adopt a specious legal argument that you're not even wanting to repeat, you find it so specious, and that actually judges might tear it down. Where are you, where are you thinking this is going? They want to burn the whole thing down. We're talking about a, a bunch of nihilists who believe in nothing except money and power, uh, who appoint their criminal friends who believe in nothing but money and power, who work for a tiny cadre of billionaires who believe in nothing but money and power, uh, and who see the only way to get that money and power is to take it from the American people. And they're going to use every angle they can. They uh, were defeated in Congress, even though we have an incredibly gerrymandered House so that Republicans are massively overrepresented. And we have the original stupid compromise in the Senate. You have two senators from California with equal weight to two senators from Wyoming. And look at the population between those two. But even with all of that structural disadvantage, they couldn't get rid of Obamacare. They couldn't put Trump care into place. Trump care is just a negative plan. It's just smashing things to pieces. But let me back up and just state it really plainly. There are a bunch of greedy liars on Wall Street. This is a criminal class of parasites who function. What what they do is they break things because that's where there's profit. When something works, They can't make money off of it. Social Security works. It's got less than 1% administrative costs. They want to destroy that so they can make money from it. No, I get the motive. Yeah, I I get Medicare works. 
I, I, I get the motive. It's not the motive isn't because they have a superior policy that will cover more people at less cost and with greater skill. That is clear. And also, what I'm interested in is sort of the threat level. When Roberts, I think it was a five-four opinion when Roberts saved Obama, saved that's you know decided not to destroy Obamacare previously, and in fact saying that the individual mandate was uh, was a, I think he's argued that it was justification for its constitutionality. And so I am I am wanting to sort of get a sense of the threat level. You are maybe more concerned about threat level than you're concerned about whatever pernicious legal or illegal arguments they're making. How would you describe, how would you characterize the threat level? It's very real. What we've seen during Donald's administration is just a wholesale packing of the courts at all levels. So these are his buddies and they want to do his will, which is to steal our health care to enrich their criminal friends on Wall Street. And thank you so much for your work, and thank you so much for spending time. And by the way, this is why people wonder, why weren't the Koch brothers focused on Congress? It was because if you can get the president and you get the courts, you can invalidate what Congress does. I want to get to a couple of people who've been calling in on Free Speech TV, but I wanted to give you the chance to give a last word on what you think people need to know and where they should be looking. I mean, we just need to understand it's a full-scale attack on us. You can go to SocialSecurityWorks.org, see what we're up to, but we got to defeat this everywhere. I'm at the ballot box, but more importantly, we need people in the street raising our voices, raising a ruckus. When we stand together, we can't be defeated. We knew the other shoe was going to drop with the tax cuts. We knew that it was, well, first cut the taxes and then go after the benefits. If you go after the benefits first, then people, you know, want to protect the Social Security. If you go after the money first, well, then you can increase the pressure to go after Social Security. So your work has never been more important, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. reading from the truth about Social Security. The founders' words refute revisionist history, zombie lies, and common misunderstandings by Nancy J. Altman. This is from chapter 5, page 239. It's titled, In the Immortal Words of Yogi Berra. This is deja vu all over again. The last chapter ended with a call to expand Social Security, consistent with the Founders' vision. Whether to increase or decrease Social Security's modest benefits, whether to add new protections or take current protections away, and whether to retain or change Social Security's fundamental structure are questions of values and collective choice. An overwhelming majority of Americans have always supported Social Security, valuing the basic security it provides by pooling risk. They understand that there are some undertakings that the government does better than the private sector. Security, both physical and economic, is one of them. To promote economic security in this world, and indeed around the world, government-sponsored insurance has proven to be extremely effective. Indeed, more than 170 countries have enacted their own version of Social Security. Americans appreciate that our Social Security system's benefits are earned and that work is a condition of their receipt. Indeed, the values that underlie Social Security are basic American values. Reward for work, individual responsibility, shared participation, risk and benefit, responsible, prudent financing, and protection of our families. Those of us who want to see Social Security remain strong and see its modest but vital benefits expanded can triumph as long as we are engaged and informed. To win, we must be vigilant, hypersensitive to the goals and tactics that those who would like to see our Social Security system dismantled brick by brick. Though opponents' tactics have changed somewhat over time, their goal has been constant. This chapter will analyze in detail both the goals and tactics of opponents throughout Social Security's history. So supporters of Social Security are well-informed and armed. 
A small minority has always believed that all but the neediest individuals should be completely on their own and has long fought a campaign against Social Security. People holding those views want, as lobbyist Grover Norquist vividly remarked, quote, to shrink government to the size where we can drown it in the bathtub. Those who oppose Social Security have always been a tiny fraction of Americans, but they have an oversized influence because they are generally people of great wealth. President Eisenhower astutely explained in a November 8, 1954 letter he wrote to his brother just who these opponents of Social Security are and what he thought of them. Quote, should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security and unemployment insurance, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. There is a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are H.L. Hunt, you possibly know his background, and a few other Texas oil millionaires, and an occasional politician or businessman from other areas. Their number is negligible, and they are stupid. End of quote from Dwight Eisenhower. Republican Dwight Eisenhower. Some members of that tiny splinter group are libertarians, who want to be free of all constraint. Others are wealthy individuals who don't believe they need to pool their risk because they are wealthy enough to self-insure and they don't want the cost associated with a collective program of insurance. Still others are unenlightened business people who define their self-interest narrowly with no consideration for the common good and want to increase their profits and wealth by reducing the cost of mandatory contributions to government. And others are people who make their living from Wall Street and recognize that if people were not receiving Social Security, they would purchase more stocks, bonds, annuities, and other financial interests in the private market in an effort to protect their economic security. What unites all of these opponents is the desire to undo universal government-sponsored insurance in the form of Social Security and Medicare. People who share these views sought to defeat Social Security when it was first proposed, and when that proved unsuccessful to change its basic structure and function as described below. The history of Social Security shows a continuous chain of opposition, but with different actors over time, of course. Interestingly, in some cases, the most prominent opponents over time have been related. The progeny of some of the wealthy opponents in the 1930s are still fighting Social Security today. The grandfather of President George W. Bush, who sought to radically transform Social Security in 2005, was a man named Prescott Bush, a contemporary of President Roosevelt. He once remarked of Roosevelt, Quote, the only man I truly hated lies buried in Hyde Park, end quote. Similarly, the father of one of the highly ideological Koch brothers, Charles and David, who have financed efforts aimed at dismantling Social Security, was a Texas newspaper publisher who used that position to rail against Social Security and other New Deal programs. Opponents and supporters have not fallen neatly into political party affiliation. Among the electorate, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents alike have always supported Social Security because they've understood how important it is to their economic security and to our nation. In addition, once Social Security was established, some Republican leaders like President Eisenhower have supported the program, at least in limited foundational size. In recent years, though, the Republican Party has endorsed proposals to dismantle Social Security, despite the claim made by virtually all Republican politicians that they support it. Moreover, as the mistaken view of Social Security as a drain on the federal budget and economy gained traction in the last few decades, some Democratic leaders have, perhaps unwittingly, pushed for changes that would undermine and weaken Social Security's protection as well. Nevertheless, though not all Democrats supported Social Security, nor all Republicans opposed it, support for Social Security over its history has largely come from Democrats, opposition from Republicans, the truth about Social Security. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Fair and only slightly unbalanced speaking the truth to the multinational corporations really around you didn't know about.
If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold want to go to call Jennifer, who is in the running for Most Patient Listener Award. Federal Way, Washington, we need a women's strike. Speak your piece, Jennifer. Thanks for calling. Hey, Jefferson. So here's my thought. We actually do need a women's strike, and we need to get pretty organized about this. It costs about a quarter of a million dollars to raise a child in this country. If you get even 10,000 women writing to their representatives and saying, until this democracy is fixed, I'm not having any kids, that's a $2.5 billion hit to the economy. And beyond that, there's another prong to this, too, which is that women make up sort of the foundation of our economy. They make up the majority of our child care workers, teachers, nurses. If your child care workers are on strike, nobody else is going to work. So if we can get women organized around these ideas that we have a lot of work to do with our democracy and they have a role to play in that, we can actually really shake things up. That's a huge threat to the economy, to our politicians, and All right, to I'm the basic this. foundations of society. What would women refuse to do? In the women's strike, it would be refusing to give birth, refusing to have sex, refusing to work, all of the above, additionally above, some of the above. What are the elements of the right. women's strike? Yeah, so, I mean, it just kind of depends on where you are in life. I mean, if you're a millennial like I am, if you are refusing to have children until we have a certain, you know, set of things fixed in our society, that is a huge hit to the economy. Our economy runs on consumerism, which yep. means they depend on us to create new consumers. If we refuse to do that, they have to start taking some of these concerns seriously, especially if our, if our representatives are getting letters from us saying, I'm not having kids until we fix X, Y, and Z. I appreciate the call, Jennifer. And you're right. I have not wanted personally, coming from my own place of white male privilege, I have not wanted to dance too much with the ideas of sort of mass civil disobedience, mass, not just, you know, strike in a given workplace or, you know, protest on a given Saturday, but mass civil protest. If we don't bend the arc, if we don't pivot the direction towards the middle class, towards uh, addressing climate change, towards addressing misogyny, towards democracy, then, then I think that we've got to be more comfortable than the privileged among us typically like to be about yeah. the mass civil disobedience. I really appreciate your and call. And climate change is the perfect reason for it, too. Yeah. Thank you, Jennifer from Federal Way. I appreciate you listening. Susan, watching this one of thousand people watching us on YouTube. Thanks for doing that. Susan, thanks yes. for calling. First, I wanted to thank Tom for his expanded Medicare plan. I think that was really great. But 
we should take it a step further and include prenatal and health and uh, um, child care. Yep. In with all that, and um, so if you're if you're healthy and you have a healthy baby, then you get to get child care. Yep. And we should also move the Medicare. Instead of just 50, we should go down to like 45, and that would speed things along a little bit so that more people could be enrolled. The interesting thing about the, about the combination, the one-two, step one-two, one-two punch, if you will, of, of Bill Barr on one saying, okay, nothing to see here. I'm going to say there was no, even if Mueller didn't, I'm going to say that there was no obstruction of justice and then trying to limit the report and, and Mitch McConnell saying no report and then going and picking the fight on health care. Health is a fight we can win and we got to win. It's a fight that a democracy can win. We're not reliant upon you know one investigator and some buddies. It's interesting to me that they've picked the fight on health care and I know why they've got to, but it's also one that we've got to win and I think the people can win. I think that there's got to be a Democrat and one of those FBI guys that were working for Mueller. And I think that sooner or later, there's going to be something that drops off the back of a truck and land in front of the uh, Washington Post. All righty. Well, I appreciate your time, Susan. Thanks for calling. Let's go to Adam from New Orleans, Louisiana. How are you doing, Adam? Good, Jeff. A year and a half back, Tom aptly coined the term resistance paralysis to recognize the dynamic tension between all the changes being intentionally introduced concurrently and people's ability to respond. It's not an equal sign. Now, both the Democrats and the Republicans are taking advantage of this resistance paralysis to implement deplorable change. Now, we know what the GOP is doing. Recently, the DCCC implemented a new policy to retroactively bar payment of contracts with consultants who work with primary challengers, doing their best to lock in incumbents and prevent progressives from winning. So moneyed interests behind both parties are investing to prevent any slide left. So if the DNC again puts their hand on the candidate selection scale, they're going to lose progressives. And I'm not sure that they care. They'll still be in power. I mean, my, my personal solution is I, I invest in things like Free Speech TV, the ACLU, Bernie Sanders. I'm doing everything that I can, but it's like this massive wave, and I'm just trying to stick my finger in the dike in as many holes as I can, and it's just overwhelming. Yeah. And I think that's intentional. It is. Well, uh, Depending on the definition of intent, I mean, of course, it's a many-front assault. And one can say, well, is it a many-front assault because of some distraction strategy or just because they want to win on many fronts? Uh, and, and it almost doesn't matter. It, it has the overlapping effect. What's your favorite response to that? Or if you could pick one, if it's a game of whack-a-mole, if it's a game of finger in the dike, or if you're suggesting that we play a different game, what's your favorite path forward? I'm splitting it really two ways. So one's leadership, uh, in my case, Bernie Sanders. And at one point, I was fighting against Citizens United, McCutcheon, those kinds of decisions. And it hit me that if we don't have a valid fourth estate, a valid free press, then literally democracy is going to die. So now the rest of the investments go toward essentially a free press, free speech TV, Tom Hartman, this kind of program. Yeah. 
because I, I don't know of anything more important. Yeah, that's my solution. Yeah, it is. I mean, th- that is why for me, and, and I have to say, I have to give a shout out to Elizabeth Warren, that she gave the smartest answer to the, this question that I could have possibly imagined, at least from where I come from, and and at least the one that I was most pleased by. And I'll say, I'm not sure I would have been able to do as well. She was asking, if you could only do one thing, the first 100 days, what, what's the first thing you do? You got all these things, you know, Obama, he started out with health care. Uh, one of the first things Bill Clinton started was, was uh, gays in the military. Where would you start? And that ended up with, don't ask, don't tell. What would you do that first thing? And she said, the first thing I would do is the anti-corruption package, some meaningful portion of the whole thing of the anti-corruption package that was passed in the House, the H.R. 1, I think it was. And the reason that would be the number one thing is that makes all the other things more likely and easier. If you can do something about campaign finance, if you can do something about Citizens United, if you can do something about making sure people can go to the polls, if you do something like uh, automatic voter registration, if you do something to push back on the purchasing of elections and the stripping away of votes of young people and people of color, then you've got a chance to be a majoritarian, have a chance to win on the other stuff. I mean, heck, it's why I am so glad to do this, why I so appreciate Tom Hartman community, why I think we have to build purpose-driven media and pro-democracy media. What are the things that we can do? And going back to a time, people remember another time I was I was guesting. Is that a thing, guesting? I'm going to call it that. When I was saying, what, is the, what does the Republican Party do? What, what do they wish for? They wish for more wishes. They don't just try to pass some gun legislation. They try to pass the kind of thing that will make it more likely Likely they can win in the future. That's what winning the course is about. So how do we wish for more wishes? How do we win things that make other wins more likely? I do think that's anti-corruption. I do think that's how the walking and the chewing gum is combined, how the corruption thing is connected to the policymaking. I'm Jeff. This is Tom Show. Zach, you have a graph for people to look at. You are in North Hollywood, and you oh, are on morning, the air. Jefferson. What's up, what's up? Oh, it's great to be here with you. Likewise. Hey, listen, you know how a graph can sometimes cut through a thousand words? Love a graph. And and present a clear picture. Yep. Here's my graph. Okay. A blank white poster is hanging on the wall. You go up and paint a big green ball right in the middle of it that encompasses most of the sheet. Okay. On the top right of that big green ball. Big green ball in the middle of the sheet. Top right. Go ahead. On the top right of the ball, you, you have a... Pus-filled, infected little boil. It's red. It's infected. <laughs> that's, that's that's a, that could be a challenging party. graph to draw, but I'm with you. Keep going. That's the Republican Party. Okay. The big green ball, you put labor on it. Okay. The Republican Party has been painting that big green ball as the left for 40 years when it's really been the dead center of the country. People that just want a fair shake. They want to move forward with safe, sane progress. What we've got to make the average person realize that little boil on the top right of us has got to be lanced, dried up, and exfoliated from our body green so that we can move forward and let the upcoming children move forward with safe, sane progress. Well, Zach from North Hollywood, I very much appreciate it. And the, you and I may have a different definition of graph, but I will adopt your definition because there would seem need, need to be some artistic license made with the red dot that had to both have pus and eventually be boiled and excised and exfoliated. But that said, reverse trigger warning for people who that, for whom that grossed out, but the, which I think included our producer, but the, the thing that I will, the thing that I will say is you said something really important, at least one thing really important. 
and that is that it has been a tool. The idea that we live in a binary world and that because most of us are blessed with two arms, that that means that the legislative chamber is drawn with an aisle and two parts of the aisle, uh, two, two parts of the chamber on each side of the aisle, that that means that each thing should be understood as having two sides. And therefore, if a power structure takes control of some element of the apparatus, then everything else must be considered just a half, just a, a, to the left of everything else. And that person should be a leftist. And the leftist should be somebody who, I don't know, wants the middle class to be a thing, who wants to have a chance to be able to either send their kids to school or make sure their kid can get a job if you think school's too expensive. Make sure that if they get sick, they have a chance to, I don't know, not be sick forever or might not have to go bankrupt if they got sick. But make sure that if we're going to have a thing called democracy, that it means you actually get to vote on stuff and elections aren't just purchased. The stuff that we think are in the center of people's lives that, you know, if everybody gets mowed down by a gun, doesn't mean nobody gets to have a gun. It just means that let's just do some stuff to make sure that not as many people get mowed down all the time. Took New Zealand like a couple days. There's just a little bit less mowing down. It's not leftist positions. It's just positions contrary to the power structure that is right now running the country. You've characterized the Republican Party. I hate characterizing as the Republican Party, in part because I am a big Abraham Lincoln fan. Not because he wasn't a racist, but because like all of us, he was trying to get a little better. This is Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. It's time for Ellen Ratner, Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Thank you so much, Ellen, for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, the White House sent out something today that said on the Green Deal, the Democrats are yellow. But then in going after the Green Deal, they never explained why the Democrats were yellow. <laughs> so we just don't know about that. Also, the vice president met with, and I guess the president did as well, with the acting president of Venezuela's wife, Fabiana. She's either 26 or 28, depending on what you read. And he is only 35 years old. So this is really who the United States considers the president. And then when President Trump was asked about Russia's interference and Russia placing people on the ground there, they said, they know, they know. So we don't really know what is happening in Venezuela in terms of boots on the ground. But we do know that something's probably going on, that's for sure. The United States did just make another move What against the electrical grid. Was that what just happened earlier this week? Well, in terms of the electrical grid, the president actually he did an emergency, whatever it's called, letter about this. And so that happened this week as well, yes. 
but we don't really know what that actually means. Now, also on some other fronts, it's very interesting that a law professor by the name of Orrin Kerr wrote out something saying, hey, if the Mueller report was like the report on Clinton, then it should have been made public. And then Monica Lewinsky tweeted, she said, and she used the F word only. (laughs) You can imagine. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on in this world. Yeah, the dissonance between the expectations of the Ken Starr report and what we were left with in the Ken Starr report, what we're left with here, both the magnitude of what was accused and then what ended up being public versus now, it's a little bit to boggle the mind. What's next, Ellen? Okay, what's next is the Affordable Care Act. Now, it's very interesting. The Justice Department reversed its position on the legal challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Originally, that was just going to be sections of it. Now, it's the entire thing. And the president said that the Republican Party is going to be the party of health care. Okay, well, where is his proposition? You know, you can say anything you want, but if you don't actually respond with a real plan, then it's useless. Yeah, unless the usefulness is just gaining power, punishing enemies, and rewarding friends. And yet, you're right. I mean, the challenge they've got is the Republican plan, the best Republican idea, was in fact Romney Care in Massachusetts, which essentially uh, presupposed Obamacare with some important differences, including Medicaid expansion. And so they're kind of boxed in without too many ideas. Well, that's for sure. Now, also, it's very interesting, two Republicans, a Republican in the Senate, Rubio, and a representative in the House, a Republican, are saying, well, they support money for the Family Leave Act, but they want to take that money out of people's future Social Security. So what does that do? I mean, you know, okay, yes, you're going to be able to leave and be with your family if you get pregnant or have to take care of your kids if you're a husband or whatever. But you have to take it out of your future Social Security earnings. And that's just ridiculous. Yeah, we've been in the wake of the big tax cuts, and now they're pushing to cut the programs, want to cut the taxes to make it easier to cut the programs rather than the other way around. Meanwhile, as I understand it, Betsy DeVos wants to zero fund Special Olympics. Well, she wants to zero fund Special Olympics, and somebody actually did the math and said if President Trump were to give up five overseas flights, in Air Force One, that would fund the Special Olympics. Oh, geez. Would fund everything Bessie DeVos talked about. She was also asked, actually, the Human Rights Campaign, which is the gay-lesbian organization, basically had a briefing today, and they said, hey, listen, you know, we've asked Bessie DeVos. We've also asked that whether kids who are lesbian or gay can be foster kids, etc. Nobody's responding. It's really unbelievable. And I appreciate the focus on the budget. I think a bunch of, you know, a bunch of humanities majors, of which I was also, end oh, up, fo- well, you know, political science, rather than math majors and people who, you know, nerd out about numbers, we, I think, sometimes avoid the reality that the federal budget is, in fact, our application of our moral choices and our priorities. I really appreciate any other coverage of the budget. Anything else on the... On- oh, there's a lot else going on. Okay, Boeing today... It's very interesting. They are actually having a meeting up in Washington state about they're inviting 200 pilots to talk about their briefing. But there's FAA hearings in Congress today, and they're very upset with Boeing, and they're actually upset with the FAA because they say the FAA should have provided more oversight in terms of this. 
And so that's very, very interesting to see what's going to actually happen with the FAA and whether the FAA is going to try and take much more of an active role. We'll see what happens with that front. Also, Senator Lamar Alexander has proposed a Green Manhattan Project. Obviously, the Manhattan Project was the project that came up with the bomb that won the war in Japan, unfortunately killed a lot of people. But basically, he said, well, they need a Green Manhattan Project. And he said, not only do we have to figure out what's going to happen with green things, we also have to go after countries such as China and India that are actually not doing what they said they were going to do in terms of green. And what are some of the key elements that we're already aware of, of what he calls not a Green New Deal, but a Green Manhattan Project? Well, I'm actually not so sure about that, but I think that it has to do with coal and what's going on with coal in this country, because obviously coal is very cheap. We have a lot of it. And the fact is, is that coal and gasoline, you know, and I always say to people, well, people say, well, why do you, you know, why do you object? We've got plenty of this. I said, do you think God means in one or two generations for us to take all of the oil out of the earth? I don't think so. No, it's it's a bad sign. If we're living entirely off dead dinosaurs, uh, it's, you know, dead dinosaurs won't last forever. Alan Ratner, Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. And I hope the goats for the old goat is going well as well. It is. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. This is Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Should we give more due to Trump corruption and the bar letter, what Marcy Wheeler of the New Republic calls the bar cover-up? Or do we make sure that we aren't so fixated on that? So we think that's so important that we recognize in some respects it's not important at all. The thing that's really important is people's lives. The democracy is how we make people's lives better. How do we build movements and build community to, in fact, make the world a little bit better rather than a lot worse? which made me also think about F. Scott Fitzgerald. The test of first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. To give a hat tip to Jim Collins, not to be limited by the tyranny of or, but to be liberated by the genius of and. From Valparaiso, it might be Valparaiso, Beth will correct me from WCPT, Ain't Afraid of Me. How you doing, Beth? Well, it's called the Vale of Paradise, which it ain't. I grew up in Arizona, so uh, I'm here in the Vale of Paradise, and it's pronounced Valparaiso. Valparaiso, I appreciate it. I'm concerned that the Democrats still don't know how to win based on how they're handling this Mueller thing. If we were ready to win, our top leaders in the Democratic Congress people and senators, as well as our pundits, would all be calling Barr the cover-up king from the yeah. moment he was proposed by Trump. And we would, if anyone's in the sound of my voice right now, repeat that, parrot that, hashtag it, cover-up king. And it, Trump is the Manchurian candidate. He's more the man. It's like every time Sean Hannity says anchor baby, he starts to play solitaire. Let's build a wall around the White House so the Manchurian candidate can't get out and do any more harm. How about that? William Sapphire, and it's not just now, William Sapphire called Bill Barr, this same dude, when he was working for the Bush administration, the cover-up general, saying that his job was not to be the attorney general, but to be the cover-up general. In fact, right. cover-up crimes for Casper Weinberger and the Bushes. And that it doesn't take a, a conspiracy theorist of the highest order to say, oh, wait a minute, Trump wanted to get rid of somebody who recused themselves because he wanted a 
attorney general put his fingers on the investigation. And he didn't want their fingers to like come back and smack Trump. That's not what he wanted. What he wanted was somebody who would protect him. And it seems to be that's what right. he got. Both Mueller and Barr are, you know, let's not forget, guys, they stayed Republicans all through the Cheney-Bush years, which are some pretty treasonous Republican behavior. And even some of our Democratic leaders, they thrive on continuing to allow the establishment to exist. And they get so into that that they don't want to step on any toes of their D.C. buddies. And it's, it's difficult. And I'll go, I'll go further. I'll go further, Beth. I'll go further. And thank you. I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you finish your point? Yes, I did. Thank you for doing your thing. The, uh, the I'll, I'll go a step further. That this is this goes back to why I was I was praising Elizabeth Warren's uh, saying. Well, the first thing I would do is the anti-corruption stuff is addressing uh, democracy first. Uh, it, it goes to uh, you know my repeated theme of democracy first. Here's the dots I want to connect. That in a world where you're running for Congress and you've got to raise lots and lots of money. Now, for the presidency, you can run for the presidency and do that largely on individual contributions. Obama did that and Bernie did that uh, coming pretty close in the primary. But running for Congress, there's a lot of congressional seats. So if you can bank a handful, more than a handful, large handful of federal maximums from corporate lobbyists, it really, really helps. And here's the problem. And regardless, let's say, let's even say they're individuals. You still want to have people who are given twenty five hundred bucks, not just a hundred bucks. You still want to make sure because it's a lot easier to get a hundred thousand dollars, twenty five hundred dollars at a time, rather than fifty dollars at a time. And not everybody is as famous as Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or AOC. So you've got to go to where the money is. And when you do that, here's the challenge: most of most of the people who have big checks to write are not revolutionaries by demeanor. So if you're going out and saying, oh, cover up general, cover up general, cover up general, and then you go to the country club or you go to the 27th floor of the high rise in your downtown in your district, or you go to some meet and greet in Washington, D.C., most of the people are not going to be the kind of person saying, oh, I really want somebody who's saying things like cover up general. They want somebody who seems urbane and comportment. Part of the advantage that Republicans have is when they run to their base, they are also running to their money. If they go extreme on tax cuts and regulation. They are running in the direction of their donors. For the vast bulk of people who are running as Democrats, when they run to their base, they are running away from a big piece of their money, at least their larger checks. And that's why we got to go anti-corruption first. We got to go pro-democracy first. We got to focus on that stuff because anybody, and that's not me trying to throw stones at someone who's trying to raise money. It takes money to run for office. So I want to amplify your point and I appreciate your call. The one thing that Trump said that was true that resonated with American people is the system is rigged and fixed. Yep. We've got to hang on to the vote for dear life, and then we've got to uh, take private money out of public elections. Thank you so much, Beth. Appreciate it. By the way, thank you for Beth's work. I'm not sure if Beth's hung up, but also thank you for your being a peace strategist. Beth is yet another example of the intelligent, active Hartman listenership that I am honored to be among. Bob from Raleigh, North Carolina. Speak your piece. I love how you're having a discussion for the bigger picture for health care. One thing I wanted to add, which is like the thing that is not being discussed and is more from the perspective of a systems thinking is like we got to include, maybe not in terms of legislation initially, but we definitely have to include our food system because it is what we eat that probably determines 70, 80 percent of our health. And we can either prevent 
so many diseases, or we can just continue to exacerbate that. I'm telling and you, I'm telling are, you, Bob. So, yeah. so much, so much. Like we we talk about healthcare, and therefore we and then we immediately go to health insurance. But what impacts right. health outcomes, as you've already stated, if we did something about our food system, our transportation system, just those two things, which are just those are two big things, and then a third thing, public health, doing something about smoking, sugar, etc. Those three things, those would impact health outcomes vastly more than whatever we do on health insurance. Amen to you, sir. Well, I tell you what, one other thing I'll add is physical culture, the old gym class, but being active, being, being outside, being basically being part of life. Those old school things that our grandparents and parents taught us and great-grandparents lived, they, they set the example. And I just look at the follow colleagues now and family members who are suffering from diabetes and, and heart disease and, and just immobility. It's just it's staggering. So I'm old enough to have lived from the time of when people were thin in the 70s. I grew up in, I was born in the 50s, so I grew up in the 60s and 70s, but I tried to be active my whole life. But I feel for the young people now, but I think it's also something we could definitely do. And I think, and I like the idea you're thinking the big stuff because you're right. Food is medicine. So just, are no, it's it's, it's critical Food stuff. And I'll give you two. I'll give you two policies that listeners can work on. That in your town, particularly in your town, you could win it. And in some of your states, you could win it. All right. So a, a more small bore policy is making sure they're learning gardens in kids' schools, a place to grow food where kids learn about how to do it, learn about what's real food, what's fake food, and then learn how to plant it, learn how to grow it. They get outside, they breathe oxygen, it comes along with a curriculum, it's pedagogically useful and it's health useful. And I'll give one story. So the, uh, uh, there's an alternative school, it's a school for kids who've had a hard time in other schools. Let's put it this way, a really hard time. And I was speaking to one of the teachers there and she said, you know, trying to let me understand the community that she was educating. She said, I went in and we wanted to teach fractions. So what I did was I gave each kid an orange and we were gonna use the orange to show how parts make a whole to teach fractions. But first, Jeff, I had to teach each and every kid how to peel an orange because they'd never had fresh produce. We've got to do something in our food system. Learning gardens is one way to do that. Another one that folks have worked on in various places is farm to schools legislation, is making sure I helped with a water bill that got water for a new potato plant, all right? And I learned after doing it that 90% of the potatoes that the potato plant processed went to McDonald's French fries for China. To be clear, not things like French fries for places like McDonald's in locations similar to China, but precisely French fries for precisely McDonald's in precisely China. So we were using U.S. water. What, what China is really buying is our water. It's not because our labor is cheaper. It's not because our potatoes are cheaper. What's cheaper is our water. And because of Western water rights rules, we grow all these potatoes, use all this water and ship it to China. That if you could create more markets in domestic areas, if you could have kids eating food from the farms in their state, not too far away, save on transportation, eat healthier and give farmers new markets. That's the kind of policy, even just pilot projects that legislatures like to do, Republicans and Democrats. There is stuff we can do other than just howl at the Trump wind or moon. I do think that's an inflection point in history. Uh, I thought so before Barack Obama was elected. In fact, my case in 2004 was that I was not as focused on the presidential race. But I thought that Barack Obama got elected too early. I voted for the guy, but that there was not yet the apparatus built. I view Barack Obama a little bit like Woodrow Wilson. That Woodrow Wilson came into power when we were pivoting from an agrarian age 
where the greatest wealth in the United States had in fact been in the South, built on the backs of slaves. Biggest wealth in my home state was from timber. Wasn't organized around the urban Portland. Urban Portland got money from the big timber centers around the state. Economic and social power built around the working farm to then after the industrial age, economic and social power built around the working city. In between there, about 1900 to 1918, the progressive era, Woodrow Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt, addressing gaping wealth disparities, addressing destruction of nature, addressing the subversion of democracy, coming out with the progressive platform. And to me, that is 100 years later, sort of where we were. In the wake of the Civil War, the best and brightest weren't going to work in government. They were working in steel mills. They were building railroads. In the wake of the Vietnam War, the best and brightest, so many of them were going to Silicon Valley. And we're waking up in both eras, the progressive era and now-ish, waking up from our orgasm of greed to look around at the challenges we have to address together. And that's where we're at. I promise we get to everybody. Raj, you've been waiting patiently. You got about 20 seconds, Raji. Okay, I wanted to talk about using politics as a way to change before everything hits the you-know-what. And I understand that what the Tom Hartman show does is amazing, and I listen to you guys all the time. But my question is, how are we going to get the American people to uprise by the millions as they do in other countries, which is what really causes change, because it's the only thing that causes the real people who are in power to be afraid and actually do something. I think politics is too slow, considering the amount of mess we've gotten ourselves into. Depending on our definition of politics. If what we mean by politics is merely elections, I couldn't agree more. We have to focus on more than elections. We have to be movement builders. We have to be institution builders. We can't just rely on the stuff that's there and make choices betwixt it. We have to build new stuff, build new energy. And each of us, I do think, needs to take one step more than we used to take. We have to have habits that are a little bit more engaged in the public thing than they used to be. We have to keep in mind the Stockdale paradox. We have to be brutally honest with the critical facts that are facing us and be ultimately confident that eventually democracy can win. You're the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. And with you, democracy is possible. You're priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. I'm Jefferson Smith. I'll be back tomorrow. Love to Tom Hartman. Love to you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 